and thank you for downloading this episode of Skin Tings. You may have heard my radio show on Absolute Radio where I recently launched a series called The Blackness of Rock. This is an episode of that fit for podcasting purpose. I hope you enjoy. For this week's episode of The Blackness of Rock, I got to speak to one of my heroes, Pauline Black. With her band The Selector, she changed the face of my teenage years after seeing them on Top of the Pops. So I started by asking her how Two-Tone approached ska music. With Two-Tone, what we tried to do was, we were mainly British black kids or white working class kids here. We mixed it up with other things like punk because that was the main thing that we were listening to when we were young. Everybody wanted a kind of, you know, beat down Pink Floyd, Genesis and all those kinds of bands because that was just <laughs> like, and we all hated hippies. Um, <laughs> and everything else kind of got mixed up in there as well. Soul, punk, you know, a bit of rock with the specials. We were probably more authentic because we mixed it up with reggae. Reggae had begun to come through. Uh, with Steel Pulse, you know, Steel Pulse had um, Ku Klux Klan out at the time, so we were all influenced by that. That was in Birmingham, so that was only a stone's throw away from Coventry where we were. And it was just like a giant melting pot. And I suppose the person who I most identified with at that time, because everybody looked like Debbie Harry back then, um, was probably polystyrene from X. Yes, of course. She just broke down all barriers. Um, And that was a great kind of thing to see on program like Top of the Pops. A young girl with braces on her teeth, decked out in this like weird gear and stuff. It was accessible in a way that Susie Sue wasn't really accessible. I've got to tell you, my granddad had a nightclub in Jamaica and basically should be. So my first reason I fell in love with was Scar. I was born in 1967. So, you know, when I was four, five years old, I remember hearing this music come out of the basement. We could kind of go in there and, and sit on the steps until it got a bit late and then we had to go upstairs and go to bed. And so when you guys came along, I was recognizing the Scar thing. But it was different, you know, there was a different flavour because I was hearing it, you know, 10 years after, a bit later. And I was like, that's my music, that's my Jamaican music. And I remember uh, watching you later on in um, Top of the Pops with the suit looking snappy. And so, you know, polystyrene, obviously, you know, when I got into music, I go back and look at polystyrene, all those bands. And then you had this impact on me because there's another black woman in the suit, but it's two women, black women, that were doing something completely different and doing something, they were authentic selves. I couldn't say that I was part of, at that time, um, the black culture in Coventry. I was introduced to it. Um, I used to work with a lot of, you know, uh, young black women who were either nurses, radiographers or any of those kinds of things. But that never translated into social life because I was brought up in a white family. So all my family were white. And and so there was always that kind of dissonance going on. And I wanted to be part of this thing. I loved the music because I could remember it in 67, 68. I was 15. And the people who introduced me to ska music, ironically enough, were white skinheads. So even when I became part of the band, I think the guys didn't kind of look at me, you know, like their girlfriends. And their girlfriends didn't look at me like 
I should be shooting her in the back. <laughs> you, you know, there's all those other layers. It sounds like, you you know, searching for your, your identity of a black person was quite a complex thing to do. But I remember when I first went to Jamaica when I was a kid, and I remember suddenly realizing that actually I'm not Jamaican either. And so that was when I had like a, an identity crisis. And I remember coming back and thinking, okay, well, what am I then? I'm not British because they don't see me as being part of them. But at the same time, I'm not Jamaican. So, you know, I think there's a, third, a certain thing about finding identity and finding family. I really identified it with you when you said that, finding, finding family in your musical scene, you know. Because the thing is, even if you're raised in a white family, you do everything that white people do. Society doesn't see you as being white. Yeah, absolutely. But then I never really wanted to be seen as white. And yeah. I was quite happy when the band started to rename myself black. Yeah. Um, you know, that wasn't my family name, but nobody in my family who were from Southeast London, Romford, a known hotbed for the NF at the time. Oh my God. And, uh, and none of them were not particularly liberal. Let's be kind. Some of them are out and out racist. And so when Black is Beautiful became a slogan, which I loved, obviously. Yep. They, they never wanted to call anybody black. You know, when James Brown named a nation, whoa, that was way out. Well, that was, yeah, everybody hated that. So that identity was kind of forming and forming and forming until the selector came along. And because I was working and moonlighting and doing gigs, I kind of changed my name because we started appearing in the NME and sounds and things like that. So the first time I was on Top of the Pops, um, I wasn't using the family name. I was using Pauline Black. So that didn't go down very well. I suppose that I define my identity through two-tone. Two-tone was ostensibly black people, white people coming together looking at the things that we loved about each other's music and uh, putting them together in one band and going forward with that and saying, look, we can get on. Here we are on the stage. We're all getting on. Why can't you? So it was really a demonstrative thing. I mean, we used to have racers come along to the gigs, Zeke hell at the stage, have to go off, you know, all all of those kinds of things. Then you'd come on and you'd kind of remonstrate with ringleaders getting thrown out, all of that. But I didn't really do it as a black woman. I mean, those are all things that have been put on me for better or for worse. I just did it as a person that I'm a member of the human race, same as all them. (laughs) them, you know. So, I mean, what's the difference? And I think maybe that was quite shocking to people at certain times because, um, because of the way I talk. That's, that's different maybe than what might be expected. You possibly get that too. It was just all the boxes that would normally be ticked in the stereotype side yeah. didn't well, get ticked. So um, I enjoyed that, I have to say, and I exploited that and still do. <laughs> but I mean, the thing I didn't know until my mother died was she used to keep all the press cuttings. She kept Sainsbury's carrier bag. She turned them everywhere to weddings, to you know anyone who'd, who'd, who'd kind of look, which you know did me in after she died. I have to say, you know, I didn't know that at the time. So even though she held all kinds of views about uh, black people, she still loved me. She loved you very deeply. Yeah, yeah. I can't say anything about that. Tell me about your sense of fashion then and where you get your kind of looks now. But back then, the only place you could get 
kind of stuff like, you know, shark skin suits and, and tonic suits and all that was when dead people, I'm <laughs> sure dead old men, <laughs> were throwing out their gear, you know, well, after they'd, 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 they'd passed on. This is back yeah, the second in the United right? So that was Oxfam shops or all of those shops. So that's where we went to source that kind of stuff. And hats were sourced from an old man shop um, in Coventry called Dunn & Company, which no what? longer exists, but it was no, very, remember, you know, that or all of those kinds of things. You know, it's like bags more buds at Burton kind of thing. But, you know, I still love that look. I love a sharp suit. I mean, my wardrobe is just full of black jackets, really, various forms. But I do love that look. Yeah, it's, um, very, it's a very strong look. I'm like, you know, it's a very defined, very strong look. And I think that's one of the things that helped the whole suit, I think, just blow up because you look so good. Yeah, but I mean, also that harks back, I suppose, to sort of that Black Panther look. That was the first look that I first saw. I mean, I was very impressed with the, the, the beret, the leather jacket, the, you know, that whole look and black polos. And I thought, I want to look like that. And also there were no women. There were no women at that time. I mean, there were the, obviously the I3s and people who were around when we were coming up. And also there were, you know, the ladies in chic. But I really didn't want to wear disco pants. Um, but I didn't really feel as though I could embrace the red, green and the gold because that wasn't necessarily part of what my heritage was. It felt um, stealing it, right? Yeah, yeah. I spoke English. Yeah. And uh, so it was just a complete reinvention and, um, and you can never go wrong with a hat. One thing I remember at the time being a teenager in Brixton, which is where I'm from, you know, occasionally you see these like East End skinheads, you know, that will come down to Brixton with bars and there'd be fights and like mini riots. You know, I remember there was a lot of tension as a kid. You know, you had to be careful not to go to a certain point. Did you ever get to grips why skinhead loved scars so much, but hated the people that made it? Uh, well, that's kind of very complicated, but I like complicated things. because <laughs> Well, then you feel at least near the essence of what the actual life of it must be about. And... Back in the days when there were still docks in London and, uh, you know, ships came in and they were unloaded and, uh, you know, a lot from the Caribbean and things like that. The style of dress was um, uh, kind of cut off Levi's, uh, you know, heavy boots, yep. Martins, monkey boots, all of those kinds of things. And this is a look races. Yeah, exactly. I love that too. I love that too. And these were uh, young black guys who were working on the docks. And some of their, you know, white compatriots kind of thing started adopting that style of dress. It was a very working class style of dress. This is how we are. This is what we do. And they were then introduced to, um, you know, the sounds of the Caribbean, which would have been at that time, Blue Beat, Rocksteady, Scar Music, early Scar Music, Prince Buster, all of them. Yeah. They were really deeply, deeply into that. And then, of course, it kind of went a bit overground, I suppose, when people started having hits, visiting here from Jamaica, Ardell coming over. Then it started spreading out and somehow some of the kind of, you know, white working class kids picked up another flavor of it. And I would call them boneheads and developed that into another whole way of thinking. I suppose that contradiction has always been there. It's always been there back in the 60s. It's there certainly in 79 when we came along. You know, root boys and skinheads at first kind of just existed side by side. Yeah. 
it's sad that that happened, mm. but nonetheless, it was a reflection of society. It's like now. I mean, it's not like everybody's liberal and, hey, you, we've all thrown off racism since Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And then, oh, you know, if anything, yeah. we're more polarized than we ever have been now. I, I agree. Whereas then those questions weren't part of mainstream society because mainstream society was totally polarized towards kind of the racist end of the spectrum. But nonetheless, it's black people bought fun, energy, a different kind of music. And, you know, by the time Marnie comes along, yeah, everybody's ready to embrace it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think that's what we're really good at doing, aren't we? In, in England, I think the wonderful thing about the music scene is we take lots of things from different places, mix it up, it'll come out with something completely new. Yeah, because yeah, your Tony Boys, mods, all of those looks came from that kind of dapper black culture, whether it was from Americans um, and rock and rock and roll and rhythm and blues in those early days, or it's coming from Jamaica and the Caribbean, you know, for me in those mm-hmm. early days. What was that for like in those days? Because, I mean, your first hit was in 1980, but you, by 1982, you broke it up. It felt like it was a really fast, crazy period of time, right? Well, the energy was full on. I mean, we were seven individuals and all of us had very well-defined personalities. Uh, we were all at each other's throats, probably most of the time. But then so were the specials. And, uh, you know, I mean, they didn't last much longer than we did in their incarnation anyway. I wouldn't go back and change any of that because when you walked in some of those dance halls, um, Tiffany's say here in Coventry, when people came along to that, they just wanted to let loose. It was the weekend. It was, you know, this this was music that they could really, really get into. And not only that, there was this great kind of um, black and white dressing and they, they vaguely understood what was underpinning it. Um, and, and it had an ethos. And so all of these were all levels people could kind of access it. And sweat used to drip down the walls and I mean, yeah. non-stop dancing with three bands all for the price of three quid. I mean, what not to like. We were this band that was made up of, I mean, in our case, six black people, one of them being a woman and one white person. That was an odd mix in, in those days. Uh, the specials only had two black guys kind of thing. I mean, not that we were vying for, but I mean, we used to be known, we used to be known as, uh, you know, the selector plus six in some quarters. So that kind of tells you everything that was yeah. going on out there, as it were, about how we were. But we were there. We were in, in your face kind of thing. Yeah, sometimes I just think you've got to stick your head above the parapet and you've just got to say, look, here we are. This is how things could be. And if that's political, that's political. I think what you did um, helped me fight for my place as well, because I saw Selector and all this to Scar music and how that had edge to it. That's what got me into music, because the connection between Scar, my childhood growing up and then as a teenager with you guys. I mean, I think for me, it gave me a sense of edge in the music and a sense of identity and that fact that this was music that I loved. I mean, why do you think it's just such a lasting sound and people still love it? I think the music has been influential, one, because a lot of it was just very good songs, two, the energy of it, and three, that it happened at a time in people's lives when you're really trying to form your own identity, what you believe, what politically you believe, socially you believe, and all of those sorts of things. And for some people, that, that resonated very, very deeply because, you know, racism hasn't gone away, sexism hasn't gone away. So for those people who are now in their 40s, 50s, 60s, it's kind of a, a small beacon of light 
during the Thatcher era. Yeah. And they felt like they could, their little bit of the world, they could take it on. And they had answers for the ills, if you like, that uh, beset the world at that time. And those ills have not changed. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think also that there's so much fakery around and there's so much inauthenticity. It's almost like people are harking back to those times when it was just real. Real.